You ready? So, as Stanley said, we are answering questions, your questions. So today we're talking about sex and sexuality because you asked us to, all right? It's all your fault. Just want to start by saying that talking about sex and sexuality, like I'm not an expert. Uh, I somehow managed to have three kids, but (laughs) but I'm not an expert. Um, Just on that, like if you ever want to like gross your kids out, just remind them that they are a product of your lovemaking, okay? Just... (laughs) So when Jacinda and I uh, got together, um, there were got married, there's some challenges that we brought into our sexual relationship, and no doubt that many of you, if not all of you, have got your own stories uh, around this. And So I thought it would be helpful by, to start by quoting Rowan Williams, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury up until 2012, and uh, the start of a lecture that he gave in 2002, he says this, to ask, why does sex matter? sounds a rather futile way of beginning an address in these circumstances. It's rather obvious that it does matter and that it matters in different ways to different people. To some, it matters as a cause for alarm, to others as a cause for celebration. Most people know that sexual intimacy is in some ways frightening for them. Most know that it is quite simply the place where they begin to be taught whatever maturity they have. Many of us know that the whole business is irredeemably comic, surrounded by so many odd chances and so many opportunities for making a fool of yourself. Plenty know that it is the place where they are liable to be most profoundly damaged or helpless. Culture in general and religion in particular, have devoted enormous energy to the doomed task of getting it right. So I speak as your pastor this morning, not as a theologian, not as a sex counselor, not as someone who has got everything together or figured out, and I'm not embarking on the doomed task of getting it right. All I hope is that there is some learning and some wisdom that we can all take away that will be helpful on our journey of life. And I know that, you know, talking about sex and sexuality, we're going to be reminded of our own experiences. And I know that for many, there'll be memories that, that bring some shame, guilt, trauma, fear, regret, feeling dirty, feeling unworthy, feeling unlovable. And I just want to, again, start by offering some comfort from our Bible. When you, when you read this book, we read of God's people tripping up sexually, time after time, and yet God loved these people and forgave them and stayed close to them and helped them and restored them. So we can take heart in the love of God towards us, the forgiveness of God, the redemption of unwise seasons in our life, and of God's healing power for wounds of the heart. Let's pray. God, we just welcome your presence here. Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, come and minister to, to nervous hearts, God, to, to hearts that are feeling vulnerable, for hearts that are recalling seasons in their lives, God, where the memories aren't good. Just come and bring your comfort and your love. 
And we just pray, God, that your spirit would be here this morning, guiding us, speaking to each one of us. Amen. All right. So sex. Let's talk about sex. It's a, it's a big deal in our sexual activity. It, it, it deeply affects our, our self-worth and our identity. And some people will say, well, there's, there's no big deal about sex. It's just, it's just physical activity. And, uh, but that's just not true. And as Rowan Williams says, it's, sex matters. As well as being physical, it's emotional, it's psychological, it's vulnerable, it's tied into morality. So much to it. And, and let's also recognize as we talk about it this morning that the sexual drive is strong. And so strong that it can sometimes override wisdom. Okay? All right. I was thinking about calling the message good sex. So what is good sex? Anyone? (laughs) (laughs) Most people talk about good sex in relation to how much personal pleasure did I get out of this sexual encounter? Well, for us here, we have a very high view of the Bible. And I assume that you do too. And as as Christians, we stand alongside centuries of Christians who have found wisdom and counsel and life in the Bible, in the Scriptures. And so we're going to turn to the Bible today to learn about sex. And as we do that, we find that the Bible, it has a lot to say about it. A lot to say about it. It's often called, what people get out of the Bible is often called Christian sexual ethics. So, and our scriptures, this is so important, our scriptures are full of God's invitation into your best life. And it is no different when we read about sex. Here is sex at its best. Here is good sex. Yes, you have some strong sexual desires. But don't just do what you want to do. Because some things will harm yourself and some things will harm others. Keep sex within healthy boundaries and it will be good sex. So what is God's best for us? What does the Bible say? It says sexual purity is good for us and something to aspire to. Sexual immorality is unhelpful and to run from because of the harm it can do. Ephesians 5.3 is just one of many verses that, will talk, that talks about sex. If, if, we, if I talked about all of the verses in, this, in the Bible, that all of the stories that, that talked about sex, I'd just be standing up here just reading them out. We'd probably be here long after regular closing time. It's, um, there's so much the Bible has to say. But in Ephesians 5 verse 3, the Apostle Paul, he wrote this, to one of the churches he planted. But among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. So the Bible teaches that sex is best within a loving, committed relationship. Marriage. One of the many verses about this says this in Hebrews, marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure For God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. So the Bible would teach us, enjoy your spouse. Enjoy giving and receiving. Do you know that the chemical that's released 
in the brain during sexual activity actually helps to bond you relationally and emotionally as well as physically. Enjoy each other. And if you're sleeping together with someone that's not, that you're not married to, think about commitment. Choose commitment. I mean, yes, you know, people say, well, yes, we can be committed and, and, and not married, but, but usually there's a reason why people say, I don't want to get, I don't think we should get married because we're committed just as it is, and it's usually, usually because one or the other is actually not wanting the commitment. That's what my experience has been with conversations with people. So marriage, single, what if you're single? Well, the Bible says be celibate, don't have sex. Yes, I know, you've got raging hormones, I know. I know you think about sex all day long. I know, yes, I know, your girlfriend's hot, I know. Don't have sex. But Matt, Matt, I, I, I just can't do that. Well, keep trying to not do that. You know, Paul, Paul the Apostle, is interesting that he preferred to be single and abstain from this area of his life because he was so focused on God's work, he didn't want to be distracted. But he also said famously, it's better to marry than to burn with passion. So sexual immorality, the Bible talks a lot about sexual immorality. What is that? In a nutshell, it's, it's having sex with people that you're not married to. So again, if you're single... Abstain, be celibate. And yeah, sometimes that may be for life. We have people that have said, yep, that's me. That's me. N.T. Wright is probably one of the leading scholars worldwide, New Testament scholar, theologian, and Anglican bishop. And uh, he says this. The idea that life without regular active sexual relationship is not worth living. So the idea that life without regular active sexual relationship is not worth living is a modern lie. So don't have sex with your boyfriend or your girlfriend. Don't have casual sex. Don't visit prostitutes. Don't be in getting involved in sexual activity outside of a marriage. Yes, I know the rest of the world thinks that in the church, because this is what we believe, they think we're aggressive and restrictive and oppressive and, you know, we're in the dark ages. And, but, again, the Bible will tell us. And for those of us that are followers of Jesus, we, the Bible, we, we believe this. The Bible says that, you know, that there is a way that seems right to people but it ends in trouble. In Proverbs, it says that it ends in death. Proverbs 14 says that there is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. You know, five years ago, I had a great, uh, the great privilege of uh, having a bit of a trip around Europe. And um, one of the places that uh, we visited was the Basilica Sagrada Familia in uh, Barcelona. Barcelona. So uh, now this is an incredible cathedral. And... Uh, I'll get a slide here of what it looks like from the outside. That was, um, you know, not that pretty, eh? Um, and this is kind of like what Christ the Christian worldview looks like to people who are on the outside. Kind of think it's just a little bit dull, a little bit ugly. 
Yet for those of us that are on the inside, God's ways have a beauty about them, like the inside of a cathedral. Again, this is, that's, that's inside the Sagrada Familia. You get to see the stained glass and the sculptures and the statues and the carvings and the vaulted ceilings. And this is how Christians see God's ways. When we're looking from them, we see beauty and life. The world doesn't see what God sees and what we see. They're looking at the outside of the cathedral. They don't understand humanity and sexuality and wholeness and the fullness of life as God intended for us and, in, and as God invites us into and the beauty that this has. So the flow of the whole Bible invites us to keep our sexual activity within a monogamous, loving, faithful marriage. And no sex outside of marriage. Very quiet in here. We're doing all right. <laughs> when the questions came in last year, as we invited them to, around like, what would you like us to talk about? There were a number of people that um, that fired them in, and uh, around this whole issue of sex and sexuality, and um, and people were saying like, what's the what does you, what does Coast Vineyard believe? What do you believe? What's the whole deal with this whole thing of, of sexuality? And it seems to be such a, such a thing these days that's sort of s- swirling in terms of what people think. So, so we're going to talk about that a little bit, talk about this whole thing, primarily talk about this whole thing of same-sex attraction. Okay, but before we get into it, there's four things I just want to say, four little things, just as little, little guiding things in the... And one is, uh, number one, is that you will all have strong opinions about this. Okay, you'll have strong opinions. And uh, to you, the things that you believe will seem very obvious. And because of that, I want you to decide today if you want to still be loving towards people that may think something different than you. Okay? Second thing is language is challenging. A vineyard pastor that I got great respect for that in, over in England, and I was talking to him uh, about two or three weeks ago, and just saying like, "Hey, I'm going to be talking about this," and he says, "Oh, really?" <laughs> um, but he said like, "I he, he doesn't talk about this from up the front because he's just found that like la- because of language people just uh, misunderstand, and there's just so many uh, potential ways of like, you know, he thinks he's saying this, and people are hearing this and the other, so he just says like, he has, he has conversations instead." Too much room for, um, for misunderstanding. And I know that when I talk with people about these kind of things, we start the conversation, and it's, it's, we're barely into the conversation when I will say something. So tell me what you mean by... Because I just know that so many people have different understandings about, you know, about different words and different things. And, and just on that, just today I'm going to use the word gay, and when, I'm talk, when I use the word gay, I'm talking about people who are predominantly same-sex attracted. Okay? Lots of people will um, think different things around that word. That's when I'm talking about it. I'm talking about people who are predominantly same-sex attracted. Okay. So words and understanding of words is important. Third thing is that we, we probably know people who are gay. And talking about sex and sexuality is not just a, a, a theoretical exercise to, to declare truth. We're talking about real people and real relationships with real desires and challenges and hopes. 
Some of them are our friends. Some of them are our family members, people we love. They are not aliens. They are, they are people we care about. And the fourth thing, just as we start this, is that the church hasn't been loving in this, you know, towards people that are uh, same-sex attracted. And uh, gay people have been treated terribly and stigmatized and shamed and harassed. And, and I'm very, very sorry that that has happened. And uh, that is not reflecting the heart of Jesus. So what is homosexuality? Complex discussion. And uh, can I just say that I've been doing a huge amount of, uh, of reading, learning, talking over the last few weeks. Um, and um, feel very, um, just like to say, would welcome any conversations about anything. We'll get to the end of today and you go, I can't believe you didn't talk about this or that. And like, let's get together. Let's, let's have conversations, Matt. Like, you didn't talk about this. And I, what do you, what, tell me about this. And let's, let's talk. But the question of what is homosexuality is such a, a tricky conversation because it means so many different things to different people. Like, for some, let me talk about some of the things that some people will think about when they hear the word homosexual. They think there's about someone who's got some sexual attraction to the same sex. They'll think about someone that only has sexual attraction to the same sex. For some, it'll be identity. I call myself a homosexual. For some, it's about activity. It's about having homosexual sex. For some, it's feeling that they are a different sex than defined by their genitals, which is a you know, fancy name for it, gender dysphoria. For some, it, you know, they are effeminate and people tell them that they are gay. For some, it's I was molested when I was a boy by a man, I must be gay. For some, like about 0.01% of people, they have atypical genitalia and often called intersex, and that's tricky. So don't assume we're always talking about the same thing. You've heard the, um, the letters, the LGBTQI, and there's, you, know, you can find as many to add to that. And it's people that identify as minorities that are different um, with regards to this whole thing of their sexuality. But I'm just saying, like, let's not just assume that we're all talking about the same thing. This is why conversations are so much more helpful than a talk from the front, but we're doing a talk from the front because you asked us to. So. <laughs> so those who have a stronger attraction to the same sex are about maybe like 1% to 5% of the population. Again, it's depending on definitions, okay, depending on definitions. Hey, so let's, let's look at uh, the changes and how New Zealand has viewed homosexuality over over the last while. So in 19, 1840, 1840, male homosexual acts were punishable by death. 1867, the penalty changed to life imprisonment. In 1961, the penalties were reduced again. In 1986, male homosexual acts were decriminalised. In 2004, people of the same sex and opposite sex could form a civil union, which gave couples the same rights as married couples. And in 2013, same-sex marriages were legalised. So just seven years ago, 
uh, same-sex marriages were legalized. And society's opinion, the wider society's opinion, which is different than the law, but their opinions regarding homosexual sex and relationships has changed dramatically over the last 20 years. It's just changed dramatically. There's a a slide that uh, will just pop up that uh, hopefully is is there. This is about, in in Britain, views on same-sex relationships of adults. And so the the green line is like saying that it's not at all wrong. In 1985, about 10% saying, no, it's not wrong, but like over 60% saying, no, it's wrong, always wrong. And then here we go. 2015, what is it, 15% saying, no, it's... um, it's only 15% saying it's always wrong, and 60% of the population, no, it's not at all wrong. It's just like in that short space of time. It's similar in the USA. I've read the statistics there and, uh, and New Zealand as well. And the speed of this change, this is, this is what people think about it in the society. The speed of this change has caught the church by surprise. They haven't had to do any in-depth theological reflection on this for 2,000 years, and now they're having to play catch-up. Because up until 20 years ago, the law and public thinking and what the church believed was all the same. So it's like, what, we don't have to think about it. Why would we need to think about it? And now it's a little different. It's a lot different. And this is also happening in post-modernity. And we're not going to do a big thing about what, what post-modernity is, but in some ways, it's where the Bible doesn't hold its place as the foundation of life and living. The majority of people now agree with the law and side with it because of the postmodern values of fairness and equality and tolerance and self-determined truth. So the messages from the world are now different to the messages that the church has had for the last 2,000 years. And because of the time frames all this change and happened, there is real generational divides around what is right. Usually you get a dry throat when you're nervous, but I'm just talking, so it's all right. Anyone else nervous? There's a lot of questions around this that I know that you'll be like, oh, what about this? And it'd be great, like I say, great to have conversations. But one thing I thought it'd be helpful to say is like this question of why are people same-sex attracted? And uh, you know, popular media has generally accepted the idea that homosexuality, it's biologically caused. It's like the gay gene or the gay brain. There are theories about hormonal levels in the womb, theories about bad parenting from the same-sex parent. Uh, There's theories about childhood sexual abuse. Uh, I know this is not just theories. I've heard people say this to me. Ladies have said to me, men have treated me badly, so I'm going to partner up with a woman from now on. And some Christians will believe, well, it's a decision. It's a choice that needs to be repented from. Christians will say it's an illness that needs psychological or emotional healing. Or they'll say it's a demonic problem that just needs to be cast out. I did a lot of reading, a lot of research on this, but for the sake of time, the punchline is that there is so much that we don't know. Like, seriously, the experts are saying we just don't know. And whatever we believe, we should be wary in saying that this is always the reason. Okay? So that's... 
when I had my notes together on that, that was about four or five pages around that. But um, I know, we've got lunch to go to. So. Another important thing to talk about with this is this very, very, very important distinction between desire and activity. You know, before we get into what the Bible says about same-sex relationships and activity, it's important to, to, to look at this distinction. Again, let me quote N.T. Wright. He says this, We must insist, too, on the distinction between inclination and desire on the one hand and activity on the other. We all have all kinds of deep-rooted inclinations and desires. The question is, what shall we do with them? One of the great prayer book collects asks God that we may love the thing which thou commandest and desire that which thou dost promise. That is always tough for all of us, for all of us, for me, for you, for all of us. It's much easier to ask God to command what we already love and promise what we already desire, but much less like the challenge of the gospel so there's a huge difference between desire and activity, okay? I think you know that. All right, so what does the Bible say about same-sex relationships? So there's basically five scriptures, okay? Some people will say seven, I'll talk about the other two, but basically five. There's in the Old Testament, this is before Jesus' time, this was the, the Old Testament is the scriptures of the... Jewish people, the Israelites. Leviticus 18.22, do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. That is detestable. Leviticus 20 verse 13, if a man has sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. They are to be put to death and their blood will be on their own heads. There's a couple more, in uh, one in Genesis 19 and one in Judges 19, but these are to do with sort of homosexual rape and violence, and so they're not really relevant to the discussion. So. But then we go into the New Testament. This is the time, the teachings after Jesus. 1 Timothy 1.10, and these are all written by um, Paul the Apostle, all of these ones to Timothy is his young uh, Apprentice pastor, one's to, to the church in Corinth in southern Greece, and one's to the church in Rome. First Timothy 1.10 says this, We know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. This is the one that uh, Israel Falau, um posted in his way. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then finally in Romans 1, and Romans 1, and here Paul, the apostle, he's... he's listing and condemning many ungodly and unrighteous lifestyle behaviors, which was typical of the Gentile pagans, like exchanging the worship of God for the worship of idols. You can read through it all through in Romans 1. And then in verses 26 and 27, he includes this. 
Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their woman exchanged natural sexual, sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. And it, you can't, well, I think what's well, obvious, it's obvious from these scriptures what is, what is right and good. And so then you might think, well, but well, how come some Christians believe differently? And believe that like same-sex marriage is is not immoral. Like, what's what's that all about? Well, there's a couple of a couple of reasons, um, and one is that uh, they are choosing to create a Christianity of their own making, and basically just to align with what they want. And uh, I, I know, I've got a friend who's an, an Anglican vicar, and he, um, Anglican Church, are having big conversations about this at the moment. And uh, he was talking about some uh, Anglican vicars, and he says, like, I don't even think that they're Christians. Based on what his understanding of Orthodox Christianity is, and the things that they are saying, it's like, I don't even think that they're Christians. And the second reason why some Christians would believe differently about this is that they would argue that the writers of the scriptures back in that time, 2000, well, in the Old Testament, it's probably over 3,000 years ago, in the New Testament, 2,000 years ago, he'd argue that the writers of scriptures just have no grid for contemporary, committed, faithful, loving, legal same-sex marriages. And that's a fair point. They wouldn't have had any grid for that whatsoever 2,000 years ago. But then what do people do with that is that they say in the light of this, these scriptures, they can't apply. They can't, we just can throw them out. They will um, they'll talk about the Old Testament texts and they, where it's, remember it sort of talked about those things being detestable? Um, well, there's a lot of other things that it talked about as being detestable as well, like a lot in, through Leviticus, like shellfish and rabbits and abusing the poor, not respecting the Sabbath, arrogance and lying. And then in Leviticus 20, yes, it does say that the death penalty is prescribed for sexual relations with another man, but it was also prescribed for other things as well, like blaspheming, uh, making sacrifices to other gods, teenagers disobeying their parents, and being a false prophet. And then they look at the New Testament scriptures and they say, but those don't really apply either because um, homosexuality back then was, it was more about um, the, the Roman um, promiscuities and, and orgies and, or it was more about like sex with slaves or... Uh, prostitutes, or it was about pederasty, which was where um, men back then had a young boy apprentice, and part of that relationship was was sexual. It was a very common and known um, way of doing life back in that uh, in that world. And they're saying same-sex, committed, loving, homosexual, legal marriages. It, we can't we can't relate we can't relate them to that. So therefore, 
their conclusion is that same-sex marriage is, is not immoral. So what do we believe? What do you believe? What do, what do we believe? Well, when we, look, when we look at the creation story in the Bible, we read that God created Adam and Eve in his image and declaring them man and wife. And in my view, this is a template for how God designed things to be in human relationships. You know, I, think, I believe it's telling us that God's intention for creation was never for same-sex relationships. And common sense will tell us that if opposite-sex relationships weren't the norm in God's design, then we'd never have any little Adam and Eves running around either, would we? So, yes, some people are single, you know, including Jesus and including Paul the Apostle. Yes, some people are divorced. Yes, but if you're looking for intimate relationships, God created man to be with a woman. And the scriptures we read reinforce this, as does 2,000 years of Christian sexual ethics and teaching and understanding. Let me quote you again from N.T. Wright. This is an article that he wrote. It got published in the British newspaper, The Times, uh, in 2009. And uh, says this. That wider tradition, chastity, as universally understood by the wider Christian tradition, always was countercultural as well as counterintuitive. Our supposedly selfish genes crave a variety of sexual possibilities. But Jewish, Christian, and Muslim teachers have always insisted that lifelong man plus woman marriage is the proper context for sexual intercourse. This is not as frequently suggested, an arbitrary rule, dualistic in overtone and killjoy in intention. It is a deep structural reflection of the belief in a creator God who has entered into covenant both with his creation and with his people who carry forward his purposes for that creation. Paganism, ancient and modern, has always found this ethic and this belief ridiculous and incredible. But... The biblical witness is scarcely confined to a few verses in St. Paul. Jesus' own stern denunciation of sexual immorality would certainly have carried to his hearers a clear implied rejection of all sexual behavior outside heterosexual monogamy. This isn't a matter of private response to scripture, but of the uniform teaching of the whole Bible of Jesus himself and of the entire Christian tradition. Yes, society at large sees the church's traditional position of celibacy outside heterosexual marriage as inconsistent, unfair, and unkind, ideologically driven, lacking compassion, empathy, and understanding. But, you know, there's a lot of brokenness in human life. In many ways that all of our lives, all of our lives, don't match up to God's original intention for us or God's best. And Christians, we see same-sex attraction reflecting the brokenness of humanity and the brokenness of our world. So what do we say to people? What do we say to people? 
Well, we invite people to love and serve God and within the limitations of our circumstances. We live as faithfully as possible to God's ideal. We curtail our sexual activity. If you aren't attracted to the opposite sex, the biblical choice is sexual abstinence and celibacy or getting married. There's one person, a guy called Sam Albury. He's a self-professing, same-sex attracted man. He's an Anglican minister. He's a global speaker for Ravi Zacharias Ministries, and he has chosen a celibate lifestyle. He's authored many books. One's called Is God Anti-Gay? Seven Myths About Singleness. Why Does God Care Who I Sleep With? And, and, I, and he's, he's one of many, but I mention him because he's going to be speaking in Auckland in May. And uh, if you're interested to hear more, um, it would be worth going and listening to. But this whole thing, what do we say to people? Can I just say again, at Coast Vineyard, we are committed to loving people. The whole of Scripture is summed up in, in this, love God and love people. And we must always love people and not, not treat them like things. There's a, a book um, by a guy called Martin Buber, which is um, many of you will know of, and it's, he talks about how important it is that we don't have I-it relationships, where we relate to, to people as things, as its, but we rather we have an I-thou relationship. We're relating to people as people. And sometimes love is listening. Sometimes love is encouraging. Sometimes love is saying challenging things, tough love. So within the church, sexual morality is what we call each other into. Outside the church, we realize that the people don't have to listen to us. Um, they don't really want to listen to us. Um, we can have conversations to th with them if we feel it would be helpful and loving. We can. Um, Israel Folau tried to do that and um, didn't go well. He didn't know when to stop. You know, he, he is, He's a, he's a good-hearted guy with getting bad advice. Um, he's trying to help people, but just didn't know how to. You know, we know about Israel Flower, the rugby player that got lost his job and lost everything and won the court, well, won an outer settlement court case because the um, Rugby Australia were, um, they knew that they legally were out of, completely out of line with what they did. So when people come to our church, it's the same for everyone. Our message is come as you are. And as God has welcomed all of us with our faults and our sin and our weakness, so we welcome everybody. And Paul the Apostle, his, this is his strategic advice for relationships. He talks about it in 1 Corinthians 13. He says, love never fails. Love never fails. So when we talk about how do we relate with people that uh, are sexually broken, uh, the first things we should do is offer love and mercy and compassion. This is, this is what C.S. Lewis, the author, he writes this. There is someone that I love even though I don't approve of what he does. There is someone I accept though some of his thoughts and actions revolt me. There is someone I forgive though he hurts the people I love the most. That person is me. The story of the Bible is that we come to God, we come to church as we are, and God works in us. We are not the moral police. 
We are friends who offer love and grace. Let me just finish with this. Like uh, people go, what? What is as, again? One of the questions, like, what does the vineyard believe? What does the vineyard movement believe? So I'm just going to talk about a few things here. Vineyard New Zealand has adopted a position paper that was written by Vineyard USA. Uh, it's called Pastoring LGBT Persons. Uh, so you can go, like, if you if you're interested, this is where Vineyard New Zealand stands. We've adopted this paper. It's 90 pages long, uh, but if you wanted to read it, it's called. Pastoring, just Google pastoring LGBT persons vineyard, something like you should be able to Google it and find it. And it's the vineyard movement's best efforts to put in place guidance based on working hard to understand scripture, looking at Christian tradition, and viewing people with Jesus' love. So, my summary of this document, so then you don't have to read it. My, my summary is this Welcome and holiness. I think this will go up. We believe in the radical welcome of all people into the infinite love of God. And we believe in radical obedience to Christ's moral invitation that flows from the holiness of God. The message of the kingdom is repent, believe, and follow Jesus in every area of life. Second thing, kindness and compassion. We believe that all humans are to be treated with kindness and compassion as the image bearers of God on earth. We are all sinful and it is profoundly unbiblical to pick out one sin that is stigmatized above others. Abstinence. We believe that outside the boundaries of marriage, the Bible calls for abstinence. We know that in our culture, premarital sex, along with many other forms of non-marital sex, has become normative. We want to lovingly help people of any sexual orientation to live up to the standard. We recognize that it can be a difficult journey and there must be grace along the way. The powerful, beautiful gift of human sexuality must be stewarded with seriousness and compassion within our movement. And fourth is marriage. The Bible promotes, celebrates, and affirms marriage as a covenantal union between a man and a woman. Marriage is not the highest purpose of humanity. The Apostle Paul himself was single, as was Jesus. At the same time, it must be honored as a sign and a gift from God. So that's, that's it. And in practical matters, what does the vineyard believe? Just two things. Uh, with marriage ceremonies, the vineyard movement requires that uh, marriage celebrants on the vineyard church's list are only permitted to perform or solemnize marriages between a, man, a woman and a man. That's one thing. And the other only requirement is that with, when it comes to leadership, and leadership in vineyard churches is not available to anyone in a sexual relationship other than a heterosexual marriage. So that's, that's just, what, you know, just those two things. So this is where we're at, and it reflects an honest attempt to grapple with all of the tensions of being a conservative evangelicals who love the Bible passionately and also love people passionately. So I know that because of time, there's a lot of things that we haven't had a chance to talk about. Sorry if I promised to talk about one thing and we haven't got there. I'd love to have conversations um, about the questions that you have. And, um, but can I just say this? Like, whatever your circumstances are, I mean, like, whatever your circumstances are, you're welcome here. I'd love, you know, if, if you're in a, a situation that's different to, to what we would say is, you know, what God's intention, then 
I'd love to have conversations. I'd love to learn. I'd love to like see what doing life together at you know as as God's people could look like. But you're welcome here. You're loved and invited into God's ways and and the rich life that flows from this. You know that. And it's so important, isn't it, when, with some of us, is to always acknowledge that none of us have got everything together. None of us is, is good next to God's goodness, and all of us stumble, and, and yet God keeps extending to each one of us just this, this radical welcome. I mean, that is the heart of God. He, no matter what we do in life, he's always extending us this radical welcome. Come on, come and know, know, know my love. In John 6.37, Jesus says this. He says, whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. So if you're same-sex attracted, you may be here or you may be listening to the, the podcast. Can I, can I just say this and, and please hear this with love? Is that you know, God does not hate gay people. God loves all people and so do we. And we would love it if you would be brave enough to give Coast Vineyard a try. And, um, you know, we would look forward to getting to know you and listening to your story. And uh, if turning up on a Sunday is a bit too intimidating, you know, more for people on the podcast, then I'd love to grab a coffee and have a conversation, answer your questions first. And, and it's important that you know that we won't condemn you for feeling same-sex attracted. It's not a sin to feel that way. It's only what you do with that that matters. And that's just the same for opposite sex attracted as well as same sex attracted. And I know that many of you would want me as pastor of this church to tell people how to behave. To tell people that comes to this church to behave in the way that you want them to. And uh, that's not going to happen. We want to we introduce people to Jesus and journey with them and, and invite them and to be guided by the Holy Spirit, to listen to God's leading and follow his invitation into a better life. They may not behave exactly how you want them to in many areas, just like you didn't when you first met Jesus. Remember that? But can I ask all of us to be kind and patient and gracious and loving? We all struggle with our sexual lives and our sexual drives, and, but God is gracious with us, even if we aren't with ourselves a lot of times. So let's be gracious with others in their journey into this good life that God is inviting us all into. And we'd like to invite every one of you to join us on that journey into God's best life. We'd like to invite every one of you into this journey into God's best life.